A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 20. Through chapter 20. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. So we pushed our recording by a day because Crossland was feeling a little stuffy. I believe what he said was dripping out of all of his orifices. And (laughs) turns out he's still got a pretty cracky voice based on that intro right there. I do. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> perfect yet, um, but I am much better. At the very least, I was maybe every two seconds just like <sighs> it was it was just the worst. And I was like, there's no way that either of us are going to want to edit that shit out because it's going to be so annoying. So, yeah, we're, we're doing this a day later than expected. But all told, at the very least, I'm not uh, dying anymore, I guess would be a way to put it. But yeah, no. With that, today is our third episode discussing The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 14 through 20. But before we do that, and before we talk about what we're drinking, we have to let you know that yesterday, our new show, The Catacomb Party and The Tales of Kana, has been released. Our first two episodes are out now, so go listen to them. It's a great time. It's a tabletop role-playing game where we roll dice and we mostly improv act we've got some great sound design and production there's you know imagine all of the fancy flashy things that you'd want in a tv show but audio form it's it's a ton of fun while we be goofy and i don't know try to stumble through the world it's great it's a lot of fun (laughs) you'll be able to find a link as always in our show notes so you can check that out it will be in the show notes so that you can go find it. But you should be able to find it on your podcatcher of choice by searching Catacomb Party and the Tales of Kana. Beyond that, in our short pour, we will also have the first episode of our Talk Talk available in case you are curious and can't find it. Or if for some reason you are listening to this later, that's just another prompt, another thing to listen to. So super excited for everyone to hear it. You can go find it now. Yeah, and cool. you should. Yeah, it's so fucking good. We listened to it literally right before this, which is why we're coming in a little hot <laughs> we are. as far as I mean, not not that hot, but a little bit. But before we talk about the book, PJ, to get back on topic, let's talk about what we're drinking today. So, PJ, what you drinking? Well, I had some champagne open. I believe both of us did because, yes, we wanted to celebrate a little bit. We released this new show, so I decided to. Expand upon my Depose King into Mist Reborn, and I think I found the recipe I like the most, based on sort of those those themes. I'm calling it the Philosopher Tyrant. It is two ounces of bourbon, half an ounce of rosemary simple syrup, half an ounce of hibiscus liqueur, two or three dashes of grapefruit bitters, all stirred strained into a coupe glass, lemon twist, and topped with champagne. So swapped out the absinthe and the Peychaud bitters and the Lillet Blanc, made it a little bit little bit drier, 
cut back on the sweetness from both of the uh, sweet elements. And yeah, overall, I think it is the the cocktail I was setting out to make to begin with. So I'm really, I'm really, really happy with it. Cool. I mean, it sounds, it sounds really tasty. I, what my, my mental note when you were saying that was like, I was imagining it like an advertisement, right? You've got the philosopher tyrant doing what must be done. (laughs) It's like your tagline for the cocktail. So yeah, there you go. What What are you drinking? I am having a French 75. I also had champagne open because we were celebrating via the live stream for our first show with a quick Q&A. So we all popped champagne, uh, variously or sparkling beverages of our choice. And so I decided to make a cocktail with it. And what I've got is a French 75. Really simple. Basically what you do, three ounces of champagne, one ounce gin, half an ounce of simple syrup, half an ounce of lemon juice. I haven't tried it yet to check if it's decent. Here we go. Good news. It tastes good. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, I mean, it's a good drink all told and, you know, it's, it, I think it's just, consi- it's a classic cocktail. Like this is a very kind of, I, I honestly, I, I feel like it's kind of the king of champagne cocktails or like generally regarded as the one to go to. Yeah, um, at least yeah. it and its derivatives mm-hmm. are right. all kind of in there. Is it pre-prohibition? I think it might be. I think it is because it was a World War One cocktail. Okay. Which makes it pre-prohibition. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because it's uh, named after the French 75 millimeter guns that they were using. Right. During World War One. What a time. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it fondly. Do you have a back half beer or are you? I do. God damn. Sometimes I'm funny. (laughs) A fruit punch sour from Youngblood Beer Co. It is called Spelling Expert, spelled S-P-E-L-I-N-G. E-X-P-I-R-T. Nice. Sour ale with watermelon, passion fruit, orange, and guava. So only like 4.2%. So nice, light, fruity sipper. Nice. Nice. Do you have one? Or are you Tasty. just doing that one? I mean, there's the rest of the mum, which is over there, which there's ah, about a half a bottle of. Yep. So that'll come into play at some point. To follow it up, though, really what I'm having that I'll be drinking first before the champagne is actually after the champagne probably is Edward teaches devil's son IPA. It's their mainstay. I meant to have it on the show. I'm also going to claim that I'm having it on this show as celebration for the second season renewal of our flag means death. So that's a great show. The show is so watched good. It, absolutely do. It's so much. The fun. show is so good. Cool. So before we talk about the chapters themselves, PJ, what was your overall feeling about this week's reading? How you feeling? Sad. I felt sad for most of it. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a whole lot of feelings from basically every perspective. There's nothing happy that happens that I can think of. There's one thing, but I mean it comes from trauma, so I don't know about <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, this was this was a feelings episode, I felt like. Okay. A feelings week as we kick into the book proper. What about you? How, how's this? It's unfair to ask you because you're, I love the exposition of this chapter um, of this week. I I think that it does a great job establishing and kind of starting to bring our attention to dots that our brains may not have been focused on up until this point. So I, I think it does a really good job 
of, of simultaneously asking and answering important questions in a satisfying way. Yeah. So that, that tracks. Yeah. That's kind of my feeling without getting into it too much. Cause like you said, it's a little bit unfair for me to me to talk, but I really enjoy some of the character moments in here and we're going to talk about those to mm-hmm. kick it off. We go into chapter 14 with the logbook here. Ruin's consciousness was trapped by the Well of Ascension, kept mostly impotent. That night, when we discovered the well for the first time, we found something we didn't understand. A black smoke clogging one of the rooms. Though we discussed it after the fact, we couldn't decide what that was. How could we possibly have known the body of a god, or rather, the power of a god, since the two are really the same thing? Ruin and preservation inhabited power and energy in the same way a person inhabits flesh. and Well, so... To jump to the first sentence of that, because we got a lot, we got a lot there, but focusing on that first uh, sentence, mostly impotent, I think answers a lot of questions for me because talking about like the mists killing people before they released ruin from the well, I didn't quite. I don't know. I was wrestling with that a little bit internally. Like, how did that happen if he wasn't? If he was trapped, he had to have some influence. And then that without explicitly saying it kind of helped me confirm it, that it was like he still had influence, but or it, it still had influence, but it was mostly suppressed. So I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it's whatever. Did they ever mention the smoke during their assault on the well, like their their trek to the well? So they do mention a, a black smoke seeming to swirl above and around the lanterns as they're going down. And then that is like literally them walking up to the well. And then that chapter that they mentioned the black smoke in is where ruin is released. Where gotcha. he shouts, I'm free. Right. So it is in the same section. Okay. And I guess my final note on that is I'm pretty anxious to find out more about preservation so I can actually parse any of this information because i i have no idea what's going on i have no idea what the relation to ruin is if they're connected if it's like a yin yang sort of situation if it's just two entities that are at war with each other or if they should be balanced i don't know i don't know what's up did you remember that you kind of predicted a yin yang structure of power i think i did yeah yeah, and and the idea of the hero of ages being the good and the deepness being the bad. Yep. Yeah. That was a long fucking time ago. <laughs> yep. Very early on in the begin the well of ascension. The puny humans. Puny humans. Puny tiny humans. Not even in the same realm of power. No, and that seems to be obvious from the logbooks that we get this week as well. Is it, it very much paints these things as uh preternatural in a in a big way cool all right we've got more to talk about of course with the logbooks over the course of this week but we pick up this week story-wise in a brand new perspective that of spooks and he's flaring tin i think this is important because it kind of gets into that delineation right where burning versus flaring and he's constantly burning but he's flaring to enhance senses in moments that said He's been burning it nonstop for a very long time. We were told, of course, in the first book by Ham, that burning metals for a long time is very dangerous and can have pronounced effects. Here we're seeing, seeming to see 
that start to happen to Spook. He's left with a strange impression of the sky during the nighttime to him now, and it's this incredibly brilliant, lit, uh, dark sky made manifest in a thousand, a million tiny little suns everywhere. And the the reason why he started doing this and burning this metal this way is because of the pain and guilt from Clubs' death that we really kind of got to sit in him with for a bit at the end of the last book with Ellen. Man, it's it's a tough moment here to kick it off with Spook. Yeah, this perspective was really, really impressive for me because like, I, I love that we get this perspective from Spook, but honestly, he wore his emotions on his sleeve well enough that like, basically there's no new feelings so much that we get from him. Like, it was all so well described just outwardly from other people's perspectives. And I I feel like that really speaks to his character and how open and honest he is with the people that he surrounds himself with and chooses to be open with. But he, he is exactly what he presents himself as, which was really cool to see. Yeah. I really enjoy that too. He very much wears heart on his sleeves and he, and by heart, I mean, you could say his insecurities are very out, outwardly focused and, and otherwise in other people are in tune with them because he's obvious like a 15, 14, 16 year old would be in the previous, you know, parts of the books that we've read. So, mm. you know, you've got your teenager that's really kind of going through this. And of course, all of his emotions are out and very apparent and everyone can read him. And then moving into his perspective, it's like, oh, OK, not that there isn't any more depth to his emotion, but it's very easy to immediately relate to him because we already have an understanding we already have kind of a top level of what he's feeling yeah 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 sure i i think it's i think it's masterful switching into his perspective fruit fly just like flew out of nowhere it was very strange considering i have traps i was very weirded out by that anyway so donning his (laughs) so spook donning his ninja turtle or demon hunter like stretch of cloth over his eyes with his glasses underneath roams the streets of urto the hereditary home of the venture line as well as that of the mysterious citizen of whom has taken control of the city. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. I, I love this this sort of scene setting here that we get between both the, the character building moments of of Spook and his glasses and this intro to the, the citizen. So I can accept the comparison to like the Ninja Turtles or like what would you say, Demon Hunter? Like, I, yeah. Sure. Okay. This feels way more explicitly Daredevil to me because there's no like eye holes. It does. And I'm so glad you put it that way because I I literally, as I said at this desk right now, right here, I have a poster of Daredevil on my wall because Daredevil is my favorite superhero. And this is one of my favorite panels that I've ever seen ever. And so I have it on my wall from a comic book. And, you know, I knew I, I get Daredevil vibes. I just wanted to see if you got Daredevil vibes. You know, <laughs> sure. sometimes it's about not okay. inserting the idea in your head, but seeing if you get the idea. Because I do think I made mention of it later in the notes specifically. So early on here, I okay. wanted to see like if you got the same idea, the same feeling. So perfect. I don't know. That was that was just my. But yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. This is totally like that extra sensory perspective of like he feels every individual thing. And it's not like the, the daredevil depiction from the the Ben Affleck movie where all of a sudden he has sonar, but instead like a a reaction to things and understanding where things hit and, you know, kind of the all, all sorts of goodness. It's so well described. 
I, I also really enjoy the world building that's done for the city here within Spook's chapters. The patrols that can barely see past their face because of the missed reflections. The street slots where, where we are, were these dried up canals that cannot be fixed. And just kind of the general vibe from, from Spook as he's walking around the city. As the man is so attentive to detail that everything becomes a lot sharper than any of the other perspectives are. Because he has his own sharp lens on the world. I, I just think it's really so, so well done. Yeah, totally becomes sharper. And I feel like this is a great, clever way for Branderson to like get hyper granular in his detail and introduce like this really detailed understanding of the the setting and the scenario and like what's around without jumping out of that first person view. You know, and maybe it's just kind of a a flex on his descriptive writing, but it felt if it was to be used that way, it felt really well done. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. I think one of the things that that hits me inside of this is all of that extra description, right? And the I'm I'm trying to remember exactly what it's called. I think. So if we go back to the very first description where he's describing the sky as bright with like a million stars lighting it up, it reminds me of, I think it's Trell, who is one of the first gods that Sazed mentions all the way back in Mistborn. Trell, Trellism, where it's like the million stars in the sky versus the one god and like uh, the, yeah. the power that they have all the way back then. It just it it evokes that same imagery for me of him being able to kind of see this sort of extra extra planner kind of thing. I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I really dig it. It's it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just it's so good. It also makes me want everyone else to be on the same level. You know what I mean? Like I kinda I kinda feel cheated when we go to other chapters a little bit because other people are paying proper attention to what they feel is necessary. Like it it adds a layer onto the other parts of the story. Because like says it is sad and we feel says it's sadness profoundly instead of his perspective. But I wish he would just look up and like look around and like tell us in detail what he sees. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. But what what but instead do? wallowing says it. That's all <laughs> I we mean, get. We'll get there. We'll get there. And I, I think while we're talking about this, Spook's newfound powers as well are incredibly unique. His ability to feel pebbles as needles when he's walking on them. It it's it's a mirror into this person who just feels so broken by his desire to do and to be something for people because he feels like he can do more and pushes himself to a dire extreme in, in the forms of how he's abusing his abilities for himself too. So weirdly it's similar to what says is doing, but he's actually mm. like getting something out of it. <laughs> True. Fair point. Yeah. Like it, it is flogging himself to a certain extent. He, he is punishing himself or guilt. And no matter how you cut that, that's going to be a negative. But at least he's getting some utility out of it, I guess. Yeah, at the very least, he's got some use for what's going on and, and kind of the, the tangible things that he's he's being hit with. Yeah, I agree with that. We then move kind of we, we've been talking kind of superfluously about a lot of the description of the world. But I, I think that I don't think that any of the description here is superfluous, but I think the really big plot beat is A, to catch us up on what we later know is savantism within Spook and what that looks like. 
and then B, to kind of set the stage for what's going to happen the rest of the week within kind of the city and what Spook is really doing right now. And so we we then move to his spy moment, and we are introduced to two characters. The citizen, of course, of whom is Quellian, of whom was named in the previous book, and his kind of secrets, as well as his devotion to the survivor, the Ska, announcing any trace of noble blood, kind of like how Dachshund was speaking uh, previously. And his sister, Beldra, I kind of want to ask... What'd you make of these two siblings and the trajectory established for our dear spook for the rest of the week and kind of going forward? So I guess it's going to be hard to divorce this thought from what we know going forward and like the interactions later. So I don't think I'll really even try. (laughs) There's this obvious air of sadness to her and I don't quite understand the relationship between the two of them but based on the limited amount of time we've spent observing them she seems pretty stuck and unhappy but then again this is coming from spook who is very clearly like fawning over her and maybe he is similarly to Sazed, only looking out for what he wants to see even being that hyper aware of everything like maybe maybe he's still a teenage boy looking for like some in in the girl of his dreams. I that think in that's apparently is like horrible sadness. So that's yeah. fucked up, but right. this is a spook we're talking about, so who knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't want to say that like he's he's looking for his in as in like a way to like manipulate, like he's not a breezeish type. No, 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 not like I, that. I I know I know that that's not what you're saying. I just want to clarify for audience's sake. But I I do think that it is very much a teenage boy move like the the idea that this he's like he's trying to figure her out without knowing her and without asking which is a very teen thing to do you know what i mean to make assumptions from a distance based on your impression mm-hmm. of people versus actually like talking with them and interacting and exchanging information to know something about someone you're entirely driving it based on assumptions this isn't here so maybe it doesn't belong but kind of pointing out he he's obviously very very perceptive and he can see crazy distances but he doesn't know the color of her eyes until he's right next to her mm-hmm. so like how great is his read actually from that long of a distance how can he how can he tell the sadness in her eyes when he can't actually see her eyes i yeah again i think that that's an impression that he's getting because he, of his age mm-hmm. i i truly think that i agree with you and i think that this is one of the the fun things about Sazed's perspective or not Sazed, uh Spook's perspective is that it's not that he's an unreliable narrator because I don't think that I don't think he's necessarily an unreliable narrator but he is kind of a tainted narrator he is kind of he's he's got a he's got a perspective obviously and some of that perspective is the way that he literally perceives the world and then on top of that you have to layer in his age which I think is really important to color his his decision making process and everything that he does so mm-hmm. exactly yeah i really like it i really enjoy spooks chapters they're they're great additions onto the story here especially this week mm-hmm. with that we move into chapter 15 so we start off here with the logbook of course the ash i don't think the people really understood how fortunate they were during the thousand years before the collapse they pushed the ash into rivers and piled it up outside of cities generally just let it be They never understood that without the microbes and plants Rashik had developed to break down the ash particles, the land would quickly have been buried. 
Though, of course, that did eventually happen anyway. Um, I got to say, man, I love the depth to the logic of everything that's happened with the reshaping of the world. It's just, it's absolutely amazing. It is so great to, to be able to have these really specific questions about things and know that there's an answer to it. At least that's the way it feels. It feels like it is entirely fleshed out to the point where there are like, there could be, very specific physical rules and equations and stuff that probably fairly similarly matches our, our world, but is maybe a little bit different and is still fleshed out. That's the, yeah, I, I think so. I think that this is really meant to be like a, and, and kind of like I said at the beginning, part of the reason that I like this section so much is that it, it reinforces that everything that you've questioned maybe has been thought out. Everything that you've added or that's been nagging at the back of your mind about this world and about this universe is just starting to he's just starting to click the gears one at a time just to see if you're noticing that they all start to click and fit. Yeah. So I guess the question is, are those meant to be filled or did he find the holes and like fill them later? Great question. So I I think. I think what's so difficult to answer about that question is that I think that a lot of writers and I don't I I think that this almost universally applies is that when you're writing a trilogy or like a series or something like that, you notice things that are wrong after you pass the point. Like once you publish something, it's basically the text that you have to adhere to. Right. Like you cannot really change the rules. Otherwise, you break people's immersion, you break people's logic, you pull them out unless there's a gap that you can fill to add context to a missing rule or missing understanding. And I I think that there are a number of interviews with writers out there that you can listen to in which they'd say, we all seem like a genius in book three. We all seem like we planned the whole thing out in book three. And if we didn't, we're not really doing our jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sorry. I think that there's a degree to that there. This series was written though, back to back to back. So like the books were written all at once. So I have a tough time believing that by the time that Brandon got to book three, he hadn't edited to place things in book one. So all that to say, I don't think he had kind of the same, I don't want to say inconsistencies because I don't think that's it, but I don't think he was adhering to the same kind of rules that someone might if they sold their first book before they wrote the second one because he wrote the entire trilogy as this one cohesive thing. Right. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, that makes sense. That said, there there are a couple of other books. There's one other book series that I can think of. That's I mean, obviously, The Lord of the Rings was written that way. So, like, let's not even kid ourselves. That was right. all one tome. But also, The First Law was written that way. The first three books in The First Law it was all written in the same format. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not it's not uncommon, but a lot of a lot of authors don't do it that way. So tough. It's tough to say. It's tough to say where on that side he lies. I tend to believe that. Brandon planned a lot more than a lot of authors do. I could believe that this system is complex enough. And anytime I've pointed out something that feels like a contradiction, it's not even a contradiction, but feels like a bending of the rules. There is reason behind it beyond just like, maybe it is just written in reason, but it, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that. It feels well planned. feels more like you're missing a rule or that you were missing a rule to begin with and the characters were because of the way that they were taught was incomplete right. versus 
an appending of a rule. That's that's how I think about it, because I there are a lot of times that it feels cheap. I've read books where like things feel cheap that way. This doesn't feel cheap. It feels like it was, oh, duh. It's because she had an incomplete training from Kelsier. She didn't really get it, you know? Yeah. All right. So we read the logbook here. We start off the chapter with Vin contemplating the mists and how natural they are, how different, and how they've changed over the years since the death of the Lord Ruler, since she picked them up and used them the last time. This is a really interesting start to the chapter as far as, like, reminding us of the mists a little bit, reminding us of kind of the different points in the story in which they've popped up and helped her out, which I think feeds a lot of what goes on in the rest of the chapter. What would you make of the, of the mists? So we get some context to this in a logbook entry later talking about how there are people that it like embraces and people that it pushes away from what I'm trying to remember. And I haven't taken the time to actually look back through Mistborn into that battle with Lord ruler, but I feel like I remember the mists interacting with him in a similar way or am i just pulling that out of my ass so i don't recall the tough part is is that the mist seemed to channel into vin and they didn't normally go inside i don't know that they avoided the lord ruler okay and i want to i want to also just softball throw even in as a as an explanation as Maybe there weren't enough mists in the room. It's not as though the room was suffused with mists. It was That's more like true. it was leaking in. Um, That's true. But I want to say, right, I want to say that we didn't get something so explicit. Okay. Now, there is a, in the back of my brain, there is an itching that asks, in the scene with Kelsier and the Lord Ruler, did we see the mists? That and was I don't the day. think so. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, I don't think we we saw anything there. So back when the mists obeyed that rule. So, yep. <laughs> you know, yep. needless to say, I just wanted to. Yeah, that that was my thought, too, is when you when you pose that question, I was like, huh, piecing back through. I don't think we had enough mists to really get to the Lord Ruler. And the only other interaction that we really had was Kelsier. So, mm. OK, but this has you contemplating it. Yeah. The end of this chapter, we're talking about the mist being the enemy. Uh, there's that yeah there's that too so i think we can get down we can tie that together when we get there okay so obviously this is a short chapter we jump to vin listening in on ham and ellen having a conversation about what to do about the soldiers as they march to take badricks ham argues for protecting the lives of the men as he's deeply embedded himself in them and ellen makes the case for that being completely unreasonable slowing them down and making it more costly in a number of ways, including lives in the end to take Fadrix and the cash that is there. Ham walks away and Vin and Ellen have a strange conversation that follows one where she says that Ham was chosen for the wrong task by Kelsier. At this point, what do you think about Kelsier's choice of like appointing him as well as Ellen's self-proclaimed callous thoughts about the soldiers lives and Vin's reaction to all of that? Yeah. At this point, I think I'm just going to jump on the bandwagon of trusting Kelsier's decisions. Okay. I totally get the point of view that there needs to be an emotional separation between like general and soldier. But at the same time, I can imagine the benefits of having a like totally personable rapport with all of the soldiers. Like there has to be a balance there. And I believe that Kelsier would have associated like more with the idea of being personally connected, especially considering that he seemed to do that. Like when he was like 
basically planning on jumping in and facing his own death just to kind of fight with the men that were fighting for him. You know, when the Skull Rebellion was kind of crushed and Vin followed. I yeah. I can't remember what city that was. Was it that Luthadel? Was it Luthadel? We really haven't no. been to any other cities. But they had to they had to take the Alamantic Highway. And it was like down the road and they were holed up in a cave. Oh, 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 you're talking about when they attacked. Yes, yes, yes. When the when yeah, when the rebels attacked near the pits of Hathson, because he flies off and destroyed Yes, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the, the city yeah. that's up there. Right. So I don't know. I just feel like he would have appreciated that sort of personability that Ham brought brings to the table. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like, I, I think everything's been a lesson so far. I don't, I don't know. He also didn't have really a plan for a straight up leader, right? Yeah. Right. In the, in the letter that was kind of prior, it seemed as though Doxon was the natural inheritor of the, of the leadership mantle is kind of the way that it's left. And then Ellen kind of stepped in the way of that. Yeah. Um, but he, he was set up as a bureaucrat, not, not like a leader. And maybe he was assuming that Ham would be sort of a militaristic leader of the people as well as of the army. Kind of a commander in chief sort of Mm -hmm. situation. Maybe that was the idea. And I feel like he could fill that role well, given his personality. I don't I don't think he'd survive given what we've seen from what Ellen's tried to do, but I could totally fall into Ellen's same trap, I think, to your point. Yeah, I could totally believe that that was the intention, though. Kelsier's intention. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I think that makes sense. I think that that definitely tracks, because I think that with Kelsier, we have the... We really just have those, like, final letters to try to read and understand, and so do they, right? And so that's what a lot of this is driven off of. And I, I think ultimately you're right. I think that Ham would make a good leader, but good men don't always make the best leaders, which is kind of what we're learning through Ellen. Thanks set. Yeah. Thanks set. Fucking shit. <laughs> that is, that is Seth's quote, isn't it? Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> that's yeah. Seth's exact point. <laughs> that's, that's almost exactly the quote. Yeah. Whoops. Pulled that out of the back of my brain. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I really appreciate the conversation that happens here. Did you have any particular thoughts about the way that Vin's approaching the conversation? Because uh, she's coming at it kind of... She comes at it hot. hot. Hot, yeah. But we really don't have much else in the form of Vin's like perspective to understand what she's feeling here. And mm-hmm. it, I, it feels incomplete, and I just don't understand what her headspace is and what her motivation is, but like she seems irritable. And like looking for a fight, not, not a fight, but looking for turmoil a little bit. I don't know. Jumpy. She's jumpy. She's being jumpy. Definitely jumpy. Bad articulation. I don't, I don't know. No, I, I mean, I think that she is kind of in, in an odd way. It feels like she has both solved her insecurity and reverted to like, because she's solved the insecurity, she's defaulting to these like very almost, I, I mean, you, you said it, so I'll, I'll say it and we can kind of understand and meet in the middle, but like aggressive actions and decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Because she, she has this sense of confidence, but it, it almost feels 
And you don't want to say this because you want the best for Vin, but it almost feels unfounded. Like the degree of confidence that she has in some of her decisions and actions almost feel unfounded. Yeah, it's, I guess, conviction. Yeah, yeah. That's a better way of putting it than aggression. It's totally conviction. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. And that's tough to sort out. That's tough to deal with, especially with a character like Vin, of whom has had to grow through all of these different traumatic experiences and growing pains. Right. It feels like a regression to a certain extent from like a certain amount of tact that she had displayed previously. Yeah, totally. But tact is a good way of putting it because it does, it did feel like she was there and now the pressure of everything is kind of turning her into a pressure cooker of those emotions. Yeah. And is this pewter talking? (laughs) Oh, great call. Was it pewter talking before even? Oh, I mean, that's a good question. Is she burning pewter right now? I don't think, not to the same degree. I I think that she basically dropped out of that drag at the end of the last book into going into the Well of Ascension. And I think she's been very cautious about it. I think that it was explicit last week that she'd been kind of cautious about it. Yeah. Hmm. Questions, questions. Yeah, that is interesting. So to end the chapter, to round it out here, after the conversation with Ellen and Ham about the army, Vin tracks down her coloss or coloss friend. I like to think of them as friendly. Uh, They're not, human. Though. <laughs> They're not exactly friendly. Human is tough, to, tough friendly. to talk to. He I hates love her. Friendly. Well, yeah, he does explicitly. Hate her. He, he outwardly hates her. Yeah, <laughs> I think. He, but the the question is, is do coloss hate everyone? Because I think they just hate humans. You know what I mean? Like I think that. Well, they want their be, place. They in, are humans. Right. <laughs> to put it in their verbiage. Yes. Yes, they are humans. Human. Calm down. Cal- calm down, human. Can you just you take a step back? Can we can we talk about this? Don't stab me. No. Oh, God, I'm never <laughs> we're never going to make a stable economy if you keep stabbing me. Like I want this. a buddy cop comedy movie <laughs> with Vin and human. Oh, my God. They practically already made it and it's called Bright. Yeah. It's not very good. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. I got through half of it. <laughs> It wasn't like I quit halfway through. It was I had to go and like all this. I'll I'll watch this later and just never Never. had the motivation (laughs) to like turn it back on. So, yeah, it's a fine movie. It's a it's a fine movie. So anyway, we're talking about human, though, but they they share this conversation about the mists and Vin comes to some realizations. She believes the mists to truly be the enemy and especially based on some of the things that uh Human says, I want to pin this into a prediction for you. So meaning I, I probably can't have too much of a conversation with you about these things, but I want you to ascertain. Do you think that the mists are the enemy at this moment? Yes, I think they are. And I think specifically they changed sides. Oh, to a certain extent. So it she felt embraced by them and felt a kinship with the mist to a certain extent mm-hmm. early on. And she like reminisces on that and like misses that feeling. And I think that that stopped. I'd like to assert that that stopped after, or it did. I think very explicitly it did. It stopped after ruin was released. So ruin was using her and the mist, or I guess the mist, if we want to look at it that way, the mist was using her as a conduit to killing the Lord ruler and releasing ruin. And then now that she's actively working against ruin, 
She is an enemy of the mist. That's my thought. Okay. Right. That's my my only way of like justifying all of this. Trying to parse that nonsense. out. Yeah. Yeah, it, and I mean, it's it's very fun because I've been asking you kind of consistent and persistent questions about the mists, right? This entire time. And like, mm-hmm. what do you what do you think about the mists? What's the deepness? What's this? What's that? In kind of a, a fun way. And now all of a sudden the mists are, are, are maybe a bad guy. Maybe not, but maybe they are. Maybe there's, I don't know. And well, I do know, but you can't know because I know. <laughs> and I, I think that this is, it's been a really fun thing at the very least for me to track as you've been going through the story and see your emotions and impressions of the mist change over time because mm-hmm. they have shifted pretty dramatically going from this, this good thing to like, whoa, that fuels your power to like, now they're killing people like randomly kind of. And then we kind of have a and math shying away from to, her. Yeah. Like it, it, right. she's she's now repelling scared, it in general, of. and it, it dissipates when she uses alamancy. Yeah, that's not cool. It's fascinating, is what it is. So, uh, that's you know true. I'm I'm excited to uh, to delve in more here, which is why I'm glad we got to talk about that for a second. Cool. All right. Anything else in this chapter? I, nah, that's pretty good. much it. It's also the only time that we spend with Vin. One of the fascinating things about this book to me is that this is no longer Vin's story in its own mm-hmm. way. Like, Vin is still a big part of the story, but we have fully moved away from this being the tale of Vin, this now being the tale she of matters less. the crew. Hmm. She doesn't have to be the knife anymore. Well, I think she's more explicitly the knife now. She's not the only knife. No, but Ellen both can knives. be, too. Yeah, right, they're both knives. Because right. that, that's and what that, they say. That makes of. her less special. I, I don't disagree. I would add that I think that it's partially because a lot of her problems, her issues resolved in the end of the last story. She That's she feels too. confident in a lot of things. So where we were kind of picking in the first episode of the show at like Ellen's character suddenly appearing and changing, we have Vin's having mostly resolved, I think, well, and I'm not saying completely or entirely or anything like that. There can be developments and there will be, but we have Ellen's character who had off-screen development, but Vin's feels kind of coming into the story like a mostly complete pie that maybe just needs some sugar on top and then to be like toasted, you know, I, does that, it was yeah. a shitty metaphor, but do you understand what no, I mean? Like just, a I, final I get what touch. you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her headspace isn't fucked up anymore. <laughs> like right. she, she has physical threats that she has to deal with, but she's not dealing with it alone. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot more in like a lot more complicated things to deal with from other people's perspectives. And Vin can just kind of be the utility. Like what, what are we get other than the idea that she has a kinship and connection to ruin because she released him it. Like that's the only thing that like strikes me as something that is strictly unique to her at this point. So I get it. I love Vin and I don't want her perspective to go away, but I totally understand that based on how the story's progressed, she's kind of, she's grown out of the story to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. I I think she's, she's now as opposed to becoming an action figure that you want to articulate in all these different ways and move their arms. She's become more of a chess piece. In, in terms of the overall story. And it's a lot yeah. easier to just move a chess piece as opposed to articulate the chess piece, which is and why based I think on, we get this focus. I'm just going to follow through with it. With She's the a queen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, realistically, yeah, totally. Any distance, any direction. Yeah. And and again, I'm not saying that this is, it's not like we're done with Finn. We've got a lot more to go with Finn. The story is nowhere near over. But at the same time, I'm not exactly missing Vin because it it feels right. She feels right, even in these moments, kind of. Yeah, even even in the turmoil that she's facing, it's mm-hmm. not it's not internal turmoil. Yeah, so much. There's still Reen a little bit that mm-hmm. like we gotta we gotta exercise that demon somehow. But true. Yeah, I'm glad we got to talk about that because again, you know, we don't get mm-hmm. to. We don't get to go back really to Vin for the rest of the week. We go back to Ellen again, but yeah, cool. With that, we go to chapter 16. We kick it off with a logbook entry here, and it's a long one. So bear with me, folks. They're called Alimantic Savants, men or women who flare their metal so long and so hard that the constant influx of Alimantic power transforms their very physiology. In most cases, with most metals, the effects of this are very slight. Bronze burners, for instance, often become bronze savants without knowing it. Their range was expanded from burning the metal so long. Becoming a pewter savant is dangerous as it requires pushing the body so hard in a state where one cannot feel exhaustion or pain. Most people accidentally kill themselves before the process is complete, and in my opinion, the benefit isn't worth the effect. Tin savants, however, now they are something special endowed with senses beyond what any normal Alamancer would need, or even want, they become slaves to what they touch, hear, see, smell, and taste. Yet the abnormal power of their senses gives them a distinct and interesting advantage. One could argue that, like an Inquisitor who has been transformed by a hemologic spike, the Alamantic Savant is no longer even human. The one I want to focus on... I. I... Very clearly and very obviously, this is about spook. Can I make mention of something before we go too far into this? Yep. The fact that bronze burners are still basically worthless, when, <laughs> even when they're savants, is fucking hilarious to me. Like, like they get nothing. In most of them head. probably don't know that they're yeah. alamancers. Yeah. Yep. And then once they like become the most adept of their field, they don't even fucking know that. Bronze gets the short end of the stick, man. Okay, anyway, I just yeah. wanted to say that before we go. No, that's totally else. true. Yeah. Fucking bronzies. Fucking bronzies. Just wanted a little crossover there. Sorry. What I want to know, specifically because of Vin, is what the trade-off is as a bronze save or not bronze, as a pewter savant. Because it says that most people would die to get there, and the risk isn't necessarily worth the reward, but it doesn't describe what the reward is in that respect. It just says that most people would die and it maybe isn't worth it. But clearly she's been burning pewter for almost as long as Spook's been burning tin at a certain, like it was, it was months, right? Mm-hmm. It was, I think the entirety of, of the, the last year. book. Yeah, pretty much. With a couple of exceptions when she was knocked out. But even then, pretty sure that didn't end. Like the like the text says no, with Spook, like he yeah. subconsciously burns when he's asleep. Just like She'd she does. have to in order to like re- recover. That's how she recovered and didn't die mm-hmm. was burning pewter. Right. Unconsciously. So I want to know what that effect was for her. If she did indeed become a pewter savant. And I would question whether or not she became 
a savant or was just starting to feel the onset of the effects. You know what I mean? I I mean, I don't know what you're talking about to like make that distinction. The onset of the negative effects, like she was basically pushed to the brink of death and I don't think she made it to savantism, if that makes sense. Okay. Like she didn't cross the threshold, I think, based on what we have so far. All right. I think we don't have enough information to make that call. Yeah. I wouldn't feel comfortable making that call based on what we know so far. Right. Right. I totally agree. Anyway, like I'm curious to see what that is because it's the only one that's really left out of like what what the actual difference is. So anyway. Yeah. I, I think that this section, again, does a good job of defining things that you were kind of questioning before. Right. So this is where there is this question of like, well, what makes it different? Well, what makes why can why can pewter arms pewter drag and why don't this is a question a big thing that like got you i remember for a week in the last book is why why can pewter arms pewter drag why don't other things similarly drag you know what happens if they go for longer and this is that answer of savantism begins to develop in various forms you know what's the, I mean, what are the long-term effects that's not quite the case though if a pewter drag like a pewter hangover is the result of a pewter drag, but they're not a pewter savant. Like that's not the same thing. No, but the question was the long-term effects of the other metals. If you burn them continuously, that was, that was your thing. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, you said that like, this is this for pewter. What is this for tin? What is this for iron steel? You know, why just pewter? And so this is that kind of equivocation across like, here's where that starts to happen. There's probably a term for the, the, enhancing of senses that spook experienced to get him to this point that we don't necessarily see that transition or that experience but and i guess maybe instead of a hangover like symptom if you go an extended period not to the point of savantism but is that the proper term savantism i think that's what the text says okay i wasn't sure doesn't just an extended period of tin burning, not to like the very extreme, but to the point where like you were burning it for a long time and then you drop it. It's probably like comparably really, really dull senses for a little while. Like we see yeah. with, with spook later in this chapter or in this mm-hmm. section. Right. So, yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I, I feel like I that could, definitely lines up with the, the theory. I could see that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Similar deprivation because the, you know, neurons in the brain are firing in that extrasensory direction for sh- so long. You know, you, you think it about it like dopamine addiction. Yeah. Right. Like I, that's the way that my brain thinks about it is like if you if you're shortening that dopamine rush and you need to have that drug or exposure in order to get back there after years and years, years of repairing, you can sometimes fix things. You know, I, I kind of think about it the same way. Mm-hmm. Like a, a yeah. weird, a strangely addictive quality. Especially or like staring into a bright light and then trying to see at night. It'll <laughs> recover. But. Yeah, staring staring at the sun <laughs> and then trying to do literally anything. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is our longest chapter of the week. So getting into it here, we've got a lot here with Spook. So Spook wakes up sleeping under very precarious position, uh, position as he burns tin instinctively like a pewter arm, as we were mentioning. And he's working hard to make his newfound abilities and handicaps work for him. These extrasensory components. This is where we get the glasses really described as these clear lenses. 
um, that are really just there to hold the things off of him so that he has enough distance for his eyes to catch reflections to to be able to interpret light and what he's seeing. It's fascinating. This this section, I think, is, again, another like masterclass idea and portrayal from Sanderson. But starting yeah. out with Spook here, what would you think? I mean, I just love the imagery of him waking up and just grabbing a fistful of like tin flakes and throwing them into a coffee mug and slugging it down. There's <laughs> like, it so much fucking good. metal. It's so metal. <laughs> and I mean, anytime, like none of them ever described the amount of metal that they're ingesting as a fistful. So yeah. This this is his full day plus full night of like persistent burn and then another handful just in case. You know, I'm I'm thinking about this from you know kind of in the way that we've discussed this series at at large is that this is broken up into eras, right? So we've talked about this being kind of broken up into different eras and the four planned eras. I can almost imagine a timeline in the Mistborn universe in which Someone wakes up in their like 1980s-esque home and like in advertisement roles and they're like, are you tired of of waking up feeling the the dull ache of missing senses and like grabbing like just a scoop full of tin and like throwing it in and like just this advertisement that is basically what Spook is going through. I mean, um, that's Bioshock. It's Infinite. like coffee. Yeah. Like, Good call. Salts. Yeah. But I, I can just very cleanly imagine this translating to like a coffee brand advertisement for like tin the metal for some people, you know, like I can I can just see that very plainly sipping on tin and juice. <laughs> tin and juice is going to be a new cocktail name. Don't you worry about it. So we're, we kind of jump here from the the waking up and we're introduced to Dern, who is a bit of a, of a proponent of the utopian appearance, quote, of Erto, Erto, I've said it right or every time, and now I've hit a point where I said it wrong once, and now my brain is not going to say it right for a bit. Erto, it's Erto, it's got to be Erto. So Erto, this city that they're in, and I, I find Duran's character very interesting and fascinating in the fact that he kind of supports this. You know, we we see this system start to be constructed around like the approved colors and sort of this general tyranny that is imposed by the citizen make for a very interesting society post Kelsier. And the fact that like Duran Ska is also kind of a proponent for it adds a, adds a good conversation about, you know, equity right now in society. Yeah. Dern for me is kind of hard to, to nail down because like you said, he kind of simultaneously seems to be this proponent of the system and to, to the, what Kelsier preached based on what he's heard. And like, he's, he's the chief of a thieving crew and like that makes a little bit of sense, but he also points out the flaws and issues mm-hmm. and is critical at times and understands, I don't know what's going on to a certain extent. So he, I don't know if we can really trust him in any real way. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm cautious to put much faith in Dern. Yeah, and I, I don't think I don't think we're necessarily meant to put faith in Dern so much as he is a lens to maybe view the one perspective of the populace's opinion about what's going on in Urto. 
You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he's the, I don't think he's an end all be all. I feel like he fits a very specific need, which is to say some people agree with this. Some people don't. And here's kind of the vibe. Is this better than chaos? Is this better than what we were experiencing before? You know, and he's kind of a lens to, to view that through, which I, I find a really interesting and attractive lens. I, I think that in my first pass through the series, I really didn't pay attention to him that much. But I think if we think about kind of the, the larger picture of what this is saying, especially if we think about Doxon's character in the previous book, I think that it paints and, and even Kelsier's in the first book, I think it paints a very interesting lens through which we can imagine the original crew. Who never went through what they went through thinking about a society post Lord ruler. Like if they didn't have the experience of what they went through, you know, you could imagine any one of them kind of talking or thinking this way. Speaking of the citizen and sort of the vibe of the tyrannical environment in general that we find ourselves in, the citizen has legally approved wearing a new color red today of which was previously not legal, which I find the most I've already said it once in this episode, but superfluous of things for a leader to be approving is a fucking color of clothing. And he keeps his sad looking sister on his sad leash right next to her. Not actually on a leash, but it feels like she's just attached at the hip. And, and the citizen loads these noblemen of whom are decried as criminals into the houses and burns them down, burns the house down with them inside screaming. Except as we find out over the course of conversation, these aren't noblemen anymore. We've long since ran out of the pure-blooded noblemen, pure-blooded in quotes, because they may have even been bastardized somewhere along the line. They're ska that have noble blood. And it it's just, it, it, oh, it grabs my heart and it like wrenches it and squeezes it a little bit as we think about the way, in addition, that Kelsier's words and intentions have been weaponized for this mass killing of innocent people in this moment. And I, it's really kind of devastating to to the ideology in its own way to see it it weaponized when you think about demu's belief not necessarily what kelsier himself stood for even you can you can kelsier would not have agreed necessarily with this happening but and neither would the church of the survivor but how do either of them stand as good role models when some people do this with it you know what i mean yeah i mean it's a wacky wild fantasy novel where the words of religious figures are manipulated and twisted for personal gain and <laughs> justification of hatred. Like, wouldn't that suck if that actually happened in, in this world, Crossland? Every fucking time? I, I can't believe uh, you turned my words on me. You're, you're right. I think that's kind of exactly what, what Sanderson's getting at to some degree. Like, it's really it's going to happen. I think what's really ironic here is... A lot of the justification, at least what we see later on, mm-hmm. is like allomancy. The The existence of allomancy necessarily, in their eyes, means noble blood. And the survivor that they worship was a misborn. <laughs> the, the utter hypocrisy of, of everything is in, in this episode rather in this in this little chunk this chapter this chunk of story out of our toe is so brilliantly rendered by sanderson as a perfect metaphor for the way that that religion is manipulated to mm-hmm. the ends and the means of those of whom are able to control and puppet the strings yeah and exactly truly brilliantly done and honestly i don't think from my experience online i don't think this gets talked about enough 
in, in terms of the citizen and the way that he really impacts things and the impressions and sort of the utilization there. I think a lot of people focus on how cool really? Spook is in this section, which I agree. Well, there's Spook that. Spook is very like, cool. Like, this is mostly what I was thinking of was yeah. the religious sort of commentary that comes along with it. And and that's, I think, what makes this these novels so hard to like pin into a category too, because if, and I, I'm not besmirching anyone of whom of whom thinks this way, for the record, but these these novels go like back and forth between like YA and adult fiction. And this is the moment when it's like adult fiction. But if you just pay attention to spook, it's kind of YA. You know what I mean? Like it's depending on how far you peel back the onion for yourself, depending on how far you look into the window pane, as Brandon describes himself as writing, Mm -hmm. you get more or less out of it. And and also to to push back on you a little bit, you yourself have kind of had difficulty really nailing down the the actual real difference between those genres it's mostly marketing but yeah right yeah Yeah. but i i think that that's also why this book is so hard to place and why i think it's also it could be a good book for a teenager to read and it can also be a fun book for adults to read i mean like it it hits both categories versus there are some books that are very clearly written for people middle grade because the language that's used the kind of obviousness of the themes or plot sometimes which can be still fun reads Percy Jackson right. is a, a very fun series, but it's also very top level with the the thoughts and what's going on. It's still epic in its own right, but not the same. To use a recent example that's been brought up inside of the Discord because of the the TV show. So, yeah, I I don't know. I I really I really appreciate Erto the Citizen and sort of the the utter hypocrisy. It reminds me so much of the mid two thousands Catholic Church under john paul the something or other of which just felt like the most hypocritical organization during my lifetime religious wise uh but also feels like at the same time you've got vibes of uh righteous gemstones tucked in all over (laughs) here so i think that power is often manipulated by those that have power to benefit themselves and (laughs) jerlene is doing exactly that Kelsier <laughs> preached against it, but it's hard to say if he would do it himself. I missed what you what you said. What did you say? Jared Leto. <laughs> oh, Jared fucking. <sighs> um, and you know, it's it's hard to to pin it any other direction. So I I think, you know, you can totally understand where this comes from inside of Brandon's writing, especially if you think about the time frame with the uh iraq war kind of going on in in the backdrop of a lot of this and kind of the idea that one person is this and i'm not i'm not i want to clarify i'm not pinning this entirely on brandon's state of mind but it was very hard to avoid that state of mind in a lot of writing around the time it was very pervasive in american culture and so it feels like he is kind of in his own way talking down about george w bush's presidency with the sort of way that he consolidated powers. And as long as he did it, it was okay. And as long as he wrote a rule that said that it could do this, it was an acceptable thing to me. This parallels like the Patriot act in a way or the powers acquired. Oh, that's via interesting. The Patriot act. I could see that totally. When was this yeah. published? 2008 or nine. Yeah. 2008. So right. But keep in mind, he wrote these all together and the first oh, book came true. out in seven, which means he probably wrote them in four, four to six. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was yeah, that was fair. my thought. Totally I think it's fair. very 
I'm not saying it's reactionary, but I do think that it at the very least has ties to that in this moment. I feel like there's too much nuance in general in Branderson's writing to be able to pin one thing on one real world event, but I could totally see that being an influence. Yeah, I would agree. Cool. All right. I I think we covered (laughs) our thoughts on (laughs) Um, everything except for the the mass killing i guess feels about the the move of killing all these people and and sort of even the comparisons to the lord ruler in its own way in that moment the hypocrisy there yeah burning the house down with these people inside yeah yeah we get those execution scenes from the lord ruler that are really fucking brutal but they work yeah but then again he's like railing against it in in the same breath like yeah i don't it's same shit you know (laughs) yeah yeah that's fair i just wanted to make sure that we we addressed it because i don't feel like we talked about that but we talked more about the the whole power structure more or less which enables him to pull off those kind of things so you know i I really appreciate the way that spook speaks about kelsier in this week's reading i i think is really really interesting as we as we analyze it spook is at this point around 17 and where Vin's been able to kind of outgrow Kelsier, Spook thinks of him as this idol, this thing to live up to still. It's it's such a it's such a chewy bit to like think about, especially as we progress into what happens later in this week's chapter. But or in this week's uh reading, yeah, I don't know. I, I have a lot of there's there's a lot there. I mean, of course he thinks of him as an idol though. Like what mm-hmm. situation would change that for him? Vin has been in the situation where she's been able to accomplish more than Kelsier did and mm. become a more well-rounded leader in terms of perspective because she's had Ellen around and she's like, she's seen so much more and she's overcome the position that Kelsier was in. Whereas on the other hand, Spook, he's not been that strong or versatile or useful as Vin has been by his own merits, like but by his own account and by just kind of the facts of the, the situation. He's not a misborn. And like, maybe that changes going forward with his tensive autism. And now we're in soon his like pewter usage, like ignoring that going forward. But like up until now, what, has there been to allow him to abandon the ideas of Kelsier and like drop the idea that he's the, the Messiah that he's been like worshiping since before he died. That's a great point. You know, I, I think to, to me, I read it more as like 17 year old idealism. If that makes sense. Like this is, this is what he believes an ideal person could be and like looked up to him because of how important he was to him in the moment and like pulling him out and giving him a nickname and like making him this big deal. And then Kelsier was a big public deal. So it's like my friend became a celebrity and I looked up to him because I was a little teenage boy and then he died and there's this whole thing. But I I do totally understand the perspective of outgrowing, you know, feeling like he's, his usefulness has been outgrown. I should say not outgrowing his usefulness, but he's, he, he feels like I said at the beginning here, he feels worthless in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so he's kind of coming to to terms with feeling like he's got the lowest power on the Alimantic totem pole. The crew outgrew him. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way. That's a better way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. It stinks for him. Yeah. It sucks. (laughs) Yeah. And so as a 17 year old, you know, you can very easily imagine how he stays in that trap, you know, Mm -hmm. of cult of personality to some degree at that point. Right. Yeah. Because Vin was stuck in that trap, too, for a very long time. I mean. Yeah. And she had the tools to to get out of it. And he doesn't. Yeah. Tools to get out of it, meaning the ability to, like, the magical capability to feel like she can be more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously, he has the mental capabilities of getting out of that trap. But why? What's the motivation? Yeah. True. Fair point. Because it's it seems like a good thing. It seems like it it helped more than it hurt. So mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So Spook confronts Beldra and you know, it inside of this crowd in this riot in the moment, and he's able to see her green eyes through the mask he wears is it kind of a truly profound revelation of the power within a tin savant. The conversation they share, hands embrace, the warning shot he fires by telling her you know, kind of what's going on with him. Oh man, it sets up this like fun bit of story between, you know, I, I don't want to, you don't want to call them star-crossed lovers or anything like that because it's fucking, that's not it at all. He's pining <laughs> again. And we love you spook, but dear God, what, what'd you think? What'd you make? I mean, it sets up a fucking story. No doubt. Yeah. I don't know. She doesn't, she isn't like repulsed by him or like, isn't, like i don't know what to make of that she's not it it makes me think that she's not totally on her brother's side and he's like completely misreading the situation so that's a positive but pretty quickly citizen notices in a very like outright way we know he's a coin shot from later on in the fight but is he also a tin eye and therefore is he a misborn (laughs) That does ask an interesting question. Yeah, Yeah. because he's very, like, he is perceptive, laser-focused on spook, like that. So, I mean, maybe he's just paranoid about his sister's positioning. There could be that, and, like, he's just constantly looking at her. But maybe he's a Mistborn, and that's a dangerous prospect to deal with. Because if that's the case, maybe he's found the cash interesting yeah maybe he has another another question here is if he you know if there was a seeker among any of the noblemen they could out him you know what i mean like he could be outed if anyone had seeker capabilities if he had ever burned metal publicly as well there's that but i mean who are you gonna tell uh i mean you might shout it in the crowd (laughs) yeah and then you get executed (laughs) right you know, fair, fair point. Fair, you know, I, I got you, you got me. You got me. I, I do want to bring up, too. I think it's interesting. I don't think Beldra talks until she talks to Spook. Like she's in the room with Quellian a couple of times, but I don't think she ever says anything. And it kind of no. adds to that for forlorn loneliness that we were kind of highlighting from Spook's perspective. But he's also uh, just been watching her from a distance. Right. Right. And like, it's never been during but a, a distance meeting. is pretty close for him. It is. But yeah, I feel like he's only ever seen them separated, though, or he's only described them separated because when he st- when Quellian starts talking, she goes out back. So 
I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess my point was just that Beldred doesn't really talk until she talks to Spook, right? That's really kind of the first and only. She she has this kind of, I said forlorn, that's from Spook's perspective. She's got this sort of melancholy about her. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, uh, of course, we find this confrontation and kind of the, the question about the, the elemental capabilities. And we see Spook fighting against for his life against the Citizens' Ben. It's a very different combat than all of the other Mistborn fighting that we've really seen up until this point. I mean, Sazed has some interesting bits and we we see dueling canes from other perspective, but we don't really get this like hand to hand level combat until this moment. And like I said earlier, if you know anything about me, this is where Daredevil feels the strongest. I mean, the, the tie over the eyes vibes. Totally. Definitely. Early Daredevil. Pull the cap over. He can't see anyway. Hide his face. Whatever. Totally get it. Love that. This is when it really comes home for me, where it's the almost predictive element of senses, because he can literally read impressions based on the way that people are changing the way that they're standing. Right. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. And Qualian's coin shot, and he's got two pewter thugs, like... Right. Yeah. With him, like this, it's a fucking brutal situation that our poor boy's gotten himself into. For a tin eye. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he got super close to getting away. Yeah. He got Mm -hmm. super close. And I feel like he would have had he known that they were thugs. He would have been Mm -hmm. more careful about it. And he would have, he would have like stepped around and stepped out of the reach of the guy that was on the ground that eventually grabbed him by the ankle. Like, I mean, there's an argument that if he knew that there were thugs, he probably he might not have put himself in that situation to begin with. He probably wouldn't have been so bold with Beldra if he knew that the threat I think he was would have so been. valid. I think real. he would have been. You think he would have still? Okay. I don't think he thought he was risking anything by approaching her like that. I think he thought he was completely safe. Because I, I he was scrambling to think of exits after the fact. That's true. Wait, you're saying you don't think he would have approached if... No, I, I don't think in this situation that he like went up to, he didn't have an exit strategy planned in case they caught him, or in case they noticed. Yeah. Which tells me that even even if he knew... You're saying that this is more impulse. This is more spur of the moment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can get that. I can definitely get that. It, it's got this... The, the whole fight feels... You know, Spook feels like he's holding his own, especially against two pewter arms when you figured that out in the end. You know, like these are tougher, buffer, swifter people. So that's something I want to ask. Yeah. That seems like a brand new term. Pewter, pewter arm? Instead of thug. No, it's all the way back in the first book. Is it? Yep. I it's feel like it was been mostly referred to book. as thug. Thug is a term used, yeah. So is pewter arm. Okay. That's fair. It's probably the only one with two names. Hmm. You know, if I if I do imagine a reason why I'm just thinking about this right now, I would bet that thug is the term used within thieving crews and that pewter arm is probably the technical term or a more technical term. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I think that a lot of the other ones uh, fit regardless of, you know, it's like enforcer and goon. On a hockey team. Good, good call. <laughs> very, very kind of subtle delineations, um, but they filled the same role. Fair, fair point. I, I do want to bring up here when we're talking about this fight, of course, the end of the fight, right? Which is that 
one of the pewter arms stabs through one of the other ones to get spook and to get at spook. It seems as though the sword breaks off or like snaps in him and he blacks out and is then caught as his adrenaline wears off. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I don't know. Adrenaline wears off. Pewter wears off. Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm making connections that I know are there, but don't mean anything. I'm trying to <laughs> trying to make them mean more, but it's whatever. I think it just okay. is exactly what it is on the page. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's totally fair. I I just love the way that this chapter ends with that moment. It and mm. this combat feels really clean and smooth. It and does. Then the boldness of stabbing through one of your own people just to make sure that the other guy doesn't get away. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a move. <laughs> that's that's a you must have really not fucking like that guy, right? I'm okay with getting you so long as I get him. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. All right. With that, we move into chapter 17, the logbook. The subtlety displayed in the ash-eating microbes and enhanced plants showed that Rashik got better and better at using the power. It burned out in a matter of minutes, but to a god, minutes can pass like hours. During that time, Rashik began as an ignorant child who shoved a planet too close to the sun, grew into an adult who could create ash mounts to cool the air then finally became a mature artisan who could develop plants and creatures for specific purposes it also shows his mindset during his time with preservation's power under its influence he was obviously in a protective mode instead of leveling the ash mounts and trying to push the planet back into place he was reactive working furiously to fix problems that he himself had caused so this is absolutely amazing detail but is also written in a way that I forget that this is a logbook and not just a straight up lore dump, Mm -hmm. you know, like this person that's writing this book is the hero of ages and went through a similar experience of like power. Is that how they know? Like they're, they're just given the information of previous moves made or like where where do they get this information? Is it written somewhere by Rashik? I don't know. It's a mystery to me. Those are interesting assumptions, you know, based on what what we're given here. And I think it is important to remember that these aren't just cuz they they you know, they they're contextualized in the form of the logbook that we're reading here, but at the same time, they do have that element of lore dumpiness, but it doesn't feel doesn't feel heavy-handed, which I think is kind of a a tough thing to balance here, mm-hmm. because it's technically outside of the story. Yeah, or at least that's the way it is presented as a sort of annotation or addendum. Right. I I do want to bring your attention to one one bit here. It's the fact that it also shows his mindset during his time with preservation's power. So this specifically right. outlines the fact of the power that he picked up as preservations. What thoughts did you have around that? Uh, I think there's two wells. Okay. And I think that the reason why there's like this future that we're like learning about and talking about within this logbook, looking backwards, is because the hero of ages who is whoever picks up and like grabs the power from preservation's well not from ruins and Kredik Shah was built upon ruins. Well, as a prison, not as a hiding Mm. place. 
Or maybe both, but for containment, not for just strictly hiding it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's that's where my mind goes with that. I know it's kind of off the wall from just that descriptor, but it makes sense to me. And maybe that's in the pits of Athens. And that's why the terrorist people have congregated around it. And maybe that's why the ATM comes from there. Cool. So we're greeted in this chapter by Elland having made the decision for his army to fight the enemy. Of course, that enemy is the silent killer, the mists that he has so long managed to avoid with his army. It's great to see that, you know, offers he, he offers them a way out. And so some head back to Luthadel. Very few, according to the text but that the men choose to stand with him suiting up as though they're about to march into the battle for their lives because that's exactly what is about to happen. I think that speaks to Ellen's ability to manifest himself as a leader in this time, mm-hmm. which I think is a really important thing to recognize. We've, we've referred to him as a tyrant and aggressive and negative and bad in, in the very first episode of the show. And we've kind of talked about the way that this has all felt kind of like a slippery slope from his ideology, but people follow him. Yeah. For sure. I think the fact that the the soldiers were given an out and allowed to leave, presumably without consequence, I would think. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Um, without consequence. Makes so much sense from Elland. And mm-hmm. beyond that, I feel like that would be a way for Ham to be more on board with their decision making. Yeah. Right. And, and what has to happen. Like, giving them that out makes perfect sense. Totally. And it's a nice blend of the earlier chapter, chapter 15, I think, wherein they're arguing about it. This feels like the solution to that argument that feels like meeting in the middle of the road as opposed to an absolute answer either way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's as much of a compromise as you can kind of come to with this decision. Yeah. As much as you could possibly manage. I I definitely agree. What do you what do you think about Ellen and Demu's conversation about the emperor's kind of faith and its sincerity? What do, what do you make of the conversation that of not only Kelsier's snap, but of his true full change from before to after his experience in the pits as well? Like there there's a big conversation. Most of this chapter is taken up by this conversation kind of about faith and belief and the dichotomy therein, and then also Kelsier and the origin of faith. What what do you think about it? It's a lot of new information that we have to take on face value, truly. But makes sense from what we know about Kelsier and like the the process he underwent. But we know that not not in a first hand account, you know? Right. So pairing all of this information that Demu gives with what we get from Spook, if Spook is to be believed, like if his if his understanding of what happens later on is reliable, that Kelsier's yeah. like spirit is giving him direction and power, which he gets the power from something, but whether or not it's Kelsier is up in the air, truly. It really makes me curious what actually happened down in the pits. And also gives me more fuel for the the theory that there is another well down there. And if there's another well down there, maybe there's another little nugget down there. And Kelsier found a little nuggy. And Kelsier started munching on some chicken nugs when he should have been looking for Atium and became a misborn. So, wait, I, I just want you to clarify. 
you're suggesting that there is another well where at the pits so you think it's in the pits okay you didn't say that before explicitly so yeah i did i said that's why the terrorist people congregated there and that's why the atm was found there specifically i mentioned that it was at the pits yeah i brain (laughs) skipped over that okay all right well all right cool yep cool yep Kelsey Me, found a that's chicken a solid nugget. prediction. I'm going to find a way to just turn that into a prediction um, because it did not feel as that's why that's what it. I thought you were writing down. Oh, no, I, okay. I did understand what you're suggesting about a second pool that was of ruins power, like of a second well. But it didn't feel like you were so explicit as to suggest that it was the pits of Hatson. Yeah. OK. All right. So you're. You're adding on this additional context from Demu and the change that he experienced, saying that he maybe ate a different nugget. <laughs> made him. <laughs> yep. I just needed to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I I don't know that we we talked so we talked about the bravery of the men, of course, and we we've talked about a lot of things, but this chapter ends with Ellen kind of shouting to the men as they begin to fall, as, you know, 15% of them roughly begin to fall, about the, about staying strong and that we can nurse a lot of these people back to health and that some will survive and to just, like, basically tend to your fellow man as you can. And then Demu falls down right next to him. Man, is that a shocking way to end this chapter. Yeah. Yeah, so that raises some questions for me. I guess it's really, they assumed Demu was already inoculated and that's a tragic oversight or he was, and they're wrong about the fact that being out there inoculates you like those are Which the two options here. He's been out in the mist before. Vin has seen yeah. him out in the mist before, but that was before that was before they turned hostile really at the yeah. rate that they're hostile. Right. So why are those people not inoculated? If it, if it was, yes, not as potent, but still, are, is it at 100% potency right now or is it still growing? And if it's still growing, are the people that were unaffected now af- going to be affected? Like, what is the, what are the rules? PJ, when you don't know something, you can't just default to what are the rules. <laughs> you, do, you, you should try to make an assumption <laughs> to try to make it make sense in your head. <laughs> I think what the the easiest answer is uh, that he wasn't actually inoculated and he was kind of hiding that or wasn't being wasn't straight up saying that he wasn't yet. Sure. I don't think it's necessarily deception, but maybe just didn't think to say it. Yeah. yeah That's the not, easiest answer and makes the most sense. So he's not intentionally malicious. He just no. maybe didn't even realize. Right. And thought that he was okay, protected by the survivor. He's he's kind of, in a strange way, Demu is kind of the survivor's chosen one that isn't Vin. You know, like he's kind of a secondary. He's the Pope. What? Did you call him a Pope? I think he's more like an apostle. No, the crew's the apostles. I think Demu is a tangential apostle. He's Peter. He was around. He was there. <laughs> he, he wrote the book, and so he included himself. You know, like he was... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. But yeah, dear old Demu succumbs to the succumbs to the mists. Do you think he dies? No. This is a prediction for sure. Okay, no. Got I it. think he survives. Mm-hmm. And then he maybe goes a little unhinged. 
Ooh. I think he becomes <clears throat> much in the same way the citizen is misinterpreting the words of the survivor. Oh, he okay. he becomes like a miracle of the survivor and starts mm. preaching that way. Because he's kind, he kind of, he's already treading that line a little bit. Like he's, he's a lot more, I would argue, wholesome, but that does make it interestingly tangible. Okay. All right. I can see that. Yeah. All right. Cool. With that, we get into chapter 18. So we've got a logbook here. Rashik didn't solve all the world's problems. In fact, with each thing he did fix, he created new issues. However, he was clever enough that each subsequent problem was smaller than the ones before it. So instead of plants that died from the distorted sun and ashy ground, we got plants that didn't provide enough nutrition. He did save the world. True, the near destruction was his fault in the first place, but he did an admirable admirable job, all things considered. At least he didn't release ruin to the world as we did. So ultimately, these are the same thoughts that I had in the previous logbook. Like. Yeah. Easy to forget that this is a logbook entry and not just a lore dump. But I am, as always, amazed by the depth of, of everything that's being shared here. I just, I love that final, like, line, the admonition of, like, he did better than we did. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's that weird, there's there's a weird, like, shoulder shrug moment here. Sazed in chapter 18 talking about this uh says it's sending off the final horse feels very ominous in in kind of a, a grandiose metaphorical way that i think brandon sanderson doesn't often do and he even is almost so oblique in this moment to say that says thinks that it's a metaphor which which feels it, it like it tickles me in a weird way that i don't know if i love but i i do want to ask what you make of the metaphor of this horse being sent off and this this beast, this final horse. So what specifically are you referring to? I'll, I'll give my sort of thought, specifically the, the fact that this is a white horse that is ash-stained and malnourished and its ribs are showing it's unable to carry the weight of what, what it's meant to bear. And it seems like an appropriate symbolism for ellen but i don't know for sure that's what you're going for you know that's an interesting comparison to bring it to ellen i'm not necessarily saying that there's a right answer here just to be clear i just want to clarify that i think that there is a metaphor here and what's crazy to me is that brandon doesn't explain it and in the windowpane way it feels like it's not fully it, it's baked the idea is baked i don't know specifically what he's shooting for that's why I kind of asked what you saw in the window pane, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. For me, <clears throat> I love the analogy of Ellen. I think that that makes a lot of sense. It's this regal beast that's been starved to a point of desperation and to a point of where it's almost no longer useful, which is to say, I think this being the final beast of burden that they have shows that the burden is now on them to make the change in the world. Like that's that's the way that my brain goes. As, especially as we look to the way that the humans have to lift the cart and carry the cart that Alrian and Breeze are in, which is not unheard of, unbecoming, anything like that. But it is, it feels almost like a twist too far of the opulent knife for Breeze. For Alrian, it feels on character, but for Breeze, it feels like a little bit too much. It um, does. Totally. But totally that's neither here nor there inside of 
the the metaphor. The only way it would make sense is if that carriage was also carrying supplies. Like if it wasn't. I'm imagining it's a convenient way. Yeah. They strict they stripped out a bunch of like bad weight, they said. Like a lot of the rear was like wasted weight. But I would imagine it's also carrying supplies. Otherwise, it would be obtuse, I think, to Yeah. Put them in that position. Right. Yeah. But still too much for Sazed to go along with it and jump. Yeah, in the consciously carriage. make the decision to do it himself. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So regardless, there's symbolism there. There's like says it ex- explicitly mentions it as you've said mm-hmm. but at the same time they're condemning this horse to either a very difficult life of end of life yeah well i mean he says it'll be hard it could but survive. it could survive yeah. so it'll be either a death or a very difficult life uh, filled with starvation essentially why not eat the fucking horse like, what's the... They don't even address that as an option here. Mm-hmm. And that feels like a very normal thing for warbands to do when their horses become less than useful and they're dealing with, like, starvation on their own front, is eat the horse. So I I don't disagree with you, actually. I, I think that that is a very reasonable call. I think the answer here lies in the overall tone of the story itself, I think, where it's like characters in this world probably wouldn't do that based on the logic of the world my argument myself though like that's brandon's argument is like we've never gone that far they wouldn't go that far if that makes sense so like that would be a tonal shift the story hasn't been to that level of desperation like it doesn't have to be desperation to to realize that it's utility i agree with you i agree with you for me the the source of this comes more from the fact that it was so scrawny that it was unlikely to like unlikely to really provide sustenance and so they died like if it's able to walk it has muscles and, if and it has also muscles, they'd be slowing be. down to kill it slaughter it like yeah put it on the cart that's actually a more reasonable <laughs> that's the most reasonable solution is to put it on the cart and then whenever next you stop fully slaughter it but mm-hmm yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with you. I just feel like it is a or just lead it. Like, let it walk with you. Don't ride it, but just walk it. I didn't like that that was left on the table without even being addressed. I definitely agree with you. I, I don't like it. It just feels weird. It's it's not even that I don't like it. It just feels weird. It doesn't it feel does. right for a number, any number of reasons to me. So, yeah, mm-hmm. can't help. Can't help but agree. So it's a weird note. Anyway, so obviously Sazed is our lead sad boy in the story so far. And as he marches along in the snow, he's kind of he's got this. Snow ash rather, I, I said snow, but it's ash as he's like marching through these piles of ash and whatnot. He reflects on the value of religion, especially in times like these where the world is stepping all over you within that he contemplates divinity and how it should protect and prevent slaughter and be perfect and it should be perfectly reconcilable with everything that's going on in the world within you know this i this sort of absolutism i think is really hard to pierce in its own way because religion isn't supposed to be a perfect shield and says it hasn't come to realize that due to the tribulations he's faced he's he's flipped his idea of like it not needing to be perfect, which was the intent and kind of the way that he began to now began to now there's there can only be one correct solution because something has to be correct. And that's 
that's a hard thing to face. This is such a weird situation that he's put himself in though. Like he is the mm-hmm. scholar first and religious expert as a result of his scholarship. And like, I think he's not only having a hard time with the ideal, like the idea of accepting imperfection, but he's also unable to consider it as like a fine and frankly necessary concession, you know? Yeah. But then you add in the spite, like he is crossing off a lot of these just basically out of spite. He's looking for a reason to cross these off his list. And like, maybe it's the idea that he can chase vindication and validation internally by striking these religions down. I, that seems to be the vibe that I'm getting from him. And he's not actually getting any of those like positive feelings, but he just is still trying. I don't know. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that he's, he's kind of, he's, Digging his own grave at the same time as he's going kind of like, woe is me for, for my digging. What, it, it's so hard to lift the shuffle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's kind it's not like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy necessarily, but it does have that element of before you knew enough to acknowledge this as kind of truth and fact, and now you've separated yourself because you've been broken by events. And that's that's the the character struggle in this moment is I've lost that because of the events that have kind of shaken me to my core. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other folly that he's run into that he's wrestling with that he hasn't addressed yet is that it's a very real possibility that nobody's found the exact correct combination of answers. There very well could be a a religion in there that got a lot of things right. And if there's one thing wrong, he's like, nope, fuck it. But like That's this is this is a jigsaw puzzle. True. It's not one of those children's toys where you put the blocks in the hole, right? Yeah, yeah. Jigsaw puzzle is a good way to put it. So yeah. there's no definite, definite answer, especially when we are simultaneously confronted with in inside of this book the idea that they're kind like there was a religion, maybe the Cond religion, something uh, at the very least. Who, they're aware of rune and preservation, so those seem like naturally the correct religions. Yeah, and there's this weird like dichotomy and that's not to say it's religion it's just an elemental force that's going on in the world but there's so many like what's right <laughs> you know mm-hmm. kind of i don't know i to to imagine that you might land on an answer in a single lifetime i think is an infinitesimally insignificant question it's the wrong question to be asking but at the same time, he's not relying on a single lifetime. He's relying on an entire backlog of religious history going back thousands of years. But he's painting that with his own lifetime. You know what I mean? Like he he is impressing yeah. his own experience as opposed to trying to judge. That's true. You know, you know that's that's only, my in, only only in like one case, though. Everything else, he's just looking for contradictions. There was just the one case where they're not... a decent job. I just don't think he's doing a good job. And he's also <laughs> evaluating, I think, for the wrong reasons to begin with. He's doing a great job of what he's setting out to do. But what he's <laughs> setting out to do isn't finding the right religion. It's finding anything wrong with any individual religion. Yeah, it's, it's not... It's, not, it's, pro- it's disproving all other hypotheses. Not proving a hypothesis. Yeah. One at a time. Or like trying yeah. to prove a hypothesis. Yeah. 
but he's pretending that his his goal is something else. Yeah. And it, but it makes for fun conversation, it makes for an interesting oh, yeah, talking sure. point. It makes for a really fun character. I, I know that a lot of people are down on uh, Sad Boy Says It, but I disagree. Like I'm it's down to be in his perspective, but it's a it's a fun kind like not fun. It's an interesting quandary to be in inside of a character's perspective to be contemplating this this strongly. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, it's making for some really in-depth conversation between you and I. Yeah. Well, and that's that to me, I care more about these parts of the conversation than just the character bits. Right. Because I think this is really where we can try to detangle what the story is about in a bigger way. Mm -hmm. I love the plot. I love characters. I love things like that. We talk about that a lot. But when you when you're actually able to extract some form of our interpretation of authorial intent, that's when I think the story gets really good and to be fair, I think it took a book and a half for us to really get there this time because I think Mistborn is, you know, I, I really like it, but it's kind of like munching on a candy bar. It's it's going to be good, but it's mm-hmm. just a candy bar. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying a candy bar, listeners at home, but sometimes you want a little bit more. Sometimes you want, you know, a creme brulee. You want to, like, enjoy the textures through the entire thing. So moving on from kind of Sad Boy Says that we talk more with Goradel and the source of these growing brown plants as moments of kind of small hopes for the future and the hard work that it takes to make things like this happen, especially what it's like to work for yourself as opposed to being forced to work through his perspective on, on the farm and talking about his people originally being his family, originally being farmers kind of the difference of work there. What'd you make of this kind of wholesome moment with Goradel, the man who escaped, escaped who Vin spared where Kelsier would have killed. Yeah. I think it's an incredibly important distinction to make that he did the sort of idea of being forced versus being versus choosing to do a certain task. At the same time, Sazed's kind of obstinate in general about like accepting any sort of philosophical philosophical like he is at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. Like right. he he is weirdly set in his way. And Yeah. We saw that with the religion, obviously, but this is the first time we've really seen it bleed into anything else, I felt like. And it wasn't like he was pushing back hard, but he he didn't like accept the explanation that openly. Yeah. I I think that's a good call. Like he wasn't he wasn't pushing back hard, but he wasn't accepting of the reality. I like that. I don't think I need to add anything to that. I think that's a good way to pin that tail on that donkey that Goradel donkey. the reason that i really appreciate Goradel in general in the way that he's made it in the story is that it's almost this act of contrition on the part of vin for the wrongs of kelsier at this point where wherein and, and by contrition i mean he would have killed Goradel, and Goradel would have never been here to be this kind of this he would have never been here in this part of the story if kelsier were to be in vin's shoes in that moment and so it it feels like contrition for the earlier part of the story where Kelsier was indiscriminately killing the the ska guards. It's not mm-hmm. perfect. That's not what I intended, but it gets the point across. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> so the says it arrives alone at the pits of Hathson and reunites with the remainder of the terrorist people. It's fascinating that in their eyes he is this incredible symbol of hope, considering his own hopelessness and dejected path that he's been on. 
throughout the world. Beyond just his hopelessness, he's felt this sort of heightened sense of anxiety that he should be ostracized and rejected by the terrorist people because he's holding this position as ambassador and therefore is a citizen of the empire and therefore is a slave to the empire. Like that's, that's the sort of logic train that he went on to get to that position. And like, nah, they're excited for him. They're happy to see him. They look up to him and his, his self image is just completely shot, you know, like Mm -hmm. to its core, it's shot. And that sucks. Yeah. Because this is a this is like a moment of coming home. He believed that a lot of the terrorists were killed by the that most of the terrorist people were killed by the Inquisitors. So this should be a happy, hopeful moment that there's anyone left to begin with, you know, and instead he's kind of he's not meeting it with animosity, but he's meeting it with indifference. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah, I think they said 20,000 people. Yeah, right. And half of them male. Most of those males eunuchs, so pretty pretty low prospects of bolstering those numbers, I think. I'm glad you said it that way. I thought you were going to go the low odds direction, <laughs> just <laughs> a different way of saying the same thing. Okay, chapter 19. We start off here with a logbook. Yes, the ash was black. No, it should not have been. Most common ash has a dark component but is just as much gray or white as it is black. Ash from the ash mounts, it was different. Like the mists themselves, the ash covering our land was not truly a natural thing. Perhaps it was the influence of ruin's power, as the black, as black as preservation was white. Or perhaps it was simply the nature of the ash mounts, which were designed and created specifically to blast ash and smoke into the sky. Can I just say, looking at that description of what we were talking about, that I knew that this was coming last week when you brought up the color of the fucking ash in the episode when we were talking about Breeze, wanting to see the rivers painted red and if he was more creative and everything else. I knew that we were going to have this conversation when you brought up the bit about it like being, isn't ash more white than it is black? And I was like, well, it's kind of mixes of both. It's kind of gray. If you smear it, it's white. But if you look at it, it's black. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck you. So <laughs> that conversation, I genuinely can't remember if I kept it. In. No, I, re- I remember the conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't like, remember. Oh, come on. <clears throat> I don't remember if I left it in or not. Okay. Because it was just a nothing burger of a conversation. So I'm like, I don't think that needs to be in here. So I might have just entirely cut that. And then we published the episode and then I read this. I'm like, fuck. it's it's the weird loop of me putting you in charge of like letting you edit episodes is like i know if it's important or not you don't know if it's relevant if i make a funny tiny side joke you know that sometimes gets cut you know and i i knew that this one was coming because i had actually read through this week's i think i said that in last week's episode that i had accidentally read through this week's uh chunk so i'm pretty sure i cut it yeah that's fucking it didn't matter like it's like, all right, this is like it's a two it minute conversation that just doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> right. And I, I totally get the instinct to cut that. 
And you should generally do that. It's just really funny to me that I knew that this was intentional and it got cut. (laughs) I only brought it up because I only like responded because I thought it was funny and relevant. (laughs) But I mean, fair point. Fair enough. Yeah, I I think it's very funny. Did you have anything to pull from this? So it makes me realize that I've never actually thought about the color of the mists. Hmm. I've always assumed they were kind of a light gray, kind of like, I don't know, fog, essentially. Like I, I thought of them as the color of fog, but it it could be darker than that, and I just yeah. never thought about it. So that's a that's a fair point. It's an interesting point. I think that this also gives you some semblance of your yin yang answer. Rune's power as black as preservations was white is pretty explicit. oblique, <laughs> but it's explicit. Yeah, it's it's like it's. It's there. We don't know why it's there, but you're right. <laughs> like, we don't know why you're right, but you're right. So cheers. We'll read off that prediction at the end, but that's mine. Cool. All right. So moving forward here again, another short chapter. This this chunk is really interesting because it's a bunch of short chapters with just that one long spook chapter. But going into chapter 19 here, spook without his tin is just so deprived of all of the things that we talked about before. And it's just it's pulled away from him. And it's it feels like he's sapped. It feels like he's out of energy. It feels like he's empty when we crawl back into his perspective. But he begins to hear a mysterious voice, a powerful voice in his ear that tells him to crawl as the house burns down around him. I'll tell you what, PJ, I know that you're not listening to the audiobook, But this is a moment where listening to the audiobook adds that little extra flair where where you hear the voice and you're like wait a minute is that is that who i think it is there's no what <laughs> and you just get that moment of of like mm-hmm. casual realization just like you do when you're reading it but it's just because you also recognize the voice you're you're just that's reinforced for you yeah honestly it took me a little while into that section before i realized it was entirely disembodied yeah, I think on on purpose, like by design. But yeah, it was it was a little bit. So I feel like that would have changed it for me had I recognized a voice that was being spoken. It's it's a weird chunk. I I really like this chunk, especially in the way that it sounds. It's a ten minute chapter, twelve minute chapter, so it's really quick and easy to like breeze through. But yeah, it's it's just so it's so fun to hear the voice of Kelsier again. You know, not confirming, but you know, the end of the chapter basically confirms. Come on, yeah, like, come it does on. confirm it. Yeah, right. I mean, you, you know who we're talking to. In in Spook's perspective, it confirms it, but right. whether or not he's right. right is up in the air. Yeah, Spook recounts count the skulls, count the skulls, which is this note that I think Dern says. And the voice continues to command him to go to the desk and the voice tells him to burn the metal, to burn this diff. And as he downs it, he doesn't he doesn't feel that familiar surge of tin and he feels the sense of hopelessness wash over him. He misses his mouth with the first one, just like throws it out over his shoulder. So it like shakes out of his hand. It slips when he's trying to get his get the cork off, and falls. which is why he uses his teeth the second time is because he yeah. he can be for sure and like grip it tight. But then he he downs it. And the voice tells him to burn the metal. And this is different. This is new. This is a different metal reserve. And he burns it. And he's empowered by pewter. Yeah. Yes, he is. So 
This is a pretty amazing revelation that this is possible, first of all. Biggest question now for me is, is he a mistborn, being that he can burn multiple? Or do we take the words at face value that he's been imbued with the ability to to burn pewter, and that's all he has access to, or those two? Also, does him being an allomantic savant affect other metals than just tin, which he's savant in like that's a question is that tied to a single metal or just his burning abilities if you want to call it that like i got questions man this chapter poses way more questions than it answers (laughs) between between the uh mysterious voice and whatnot that's going on inside of this chapter and this moment in which he burns pewter to to make it out and to be able to empower his body to escape yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so I and answers. I want answers. You, you know, we've been we've been talking about that mysterious figure and voice, and we we mentioned it earlier that it's Kelsier, but it, it is a ghost from his past, and I think you know, you and I both know who it is, and we both assume that it's uh, it's Kelsier. But what, no, what do you says, make of it? Says explicitly that it's Kelsier. I. It says yes, right. I mean, that's that's Spook's perspective. He's looking and hearing at it, like he's looking right. at it and hearing it. Right. So we have to assume that he's right but what we're led to believe and what we're told is that it's kelsier yes it's just whether or not that's a lie or a trick right right what what do you think do you think it's a trick do you think it's a lie what do you what do you make of it in this moment it's there's a whole lot up in the air on what i believe at this point um (laughs) thinking about the possibility of if i'm gonna keep following down that thought process of is there a well at the pits of Hassan, which granted him his misborn abilities and maybe imbued him with something more than just mortality what does this mean for the miss spirit from from earlier that never spoke and was always following vin around which i feel like i might have Early, early, early on said was Kelsier. But then I also said that Zane was Kelsier. So, you know, like, don't take that as a as a legitimate. <laughs> like, it's all scattershot. Like, it's a shotgun approach. I want so badly for it to be not a trick. But I could totally believe that this was a way to co-opt and use spook on the part of Ruin. Why do you want it to not be a trick? Like, all that I mean is, like, how does that play out in your head if it weren't a trick? If it weren't a trick, we've got a whole new situation where we have a supernatural mistborn that's living outside of death that is benevolent towards our heroes. Like, why wouldn't I want that? (laughs) I, I, From like I, a was just, rooting for the heroes perspective, of course I want that force on our side. It was a quant. It was a quantifiable question. Yeah, you know. Yeah, a, yeah, 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 yeah. But I think the more interesting story is knowing that Spook so deeply believes in Kelsier that Ruin takes advantage of that belief and that love and decides to save Spook as a means of more subtle subterfuge against Vin and Elland. Doesn't that suck? Who he knows are marching on this city as we speak. Right. 
Um, that Wait, that they, seems more no, no, no. likely to me. They're marching towards Fadrix. Oh, they are. Hotel. This yeah. This was their. This next is where. Stop. Where no, 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 no. This was going. a previous. Okay. This is where Sazed is going. Yep, yep. But they yep. had already they had already taken the city previously. I don't think so. They had confirmed the cash because of a previous marker, but they have not. They snuck in the cash. They snuck yeah, in sounds, and got right. the and looked at it, but yep. they haven't taken anything out of it. Okay, right. That's right. But they got all the information from the placards. Yes, totally what it is. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. <clears throat> all right. So that makes up chapter 19. So we are in our final chapter, chapter 20. We start off with the logbook, of course. More than one person reported feeling a sentient hatred in the mists. This is not necessarily related to the mists killing people, however. For most, even those it struck down, the mist seemed merely a weather phenomenon. No more sentient or vengeful than terrible disease. For some, however, there was more. Those it favored, it swirled around. Those it was hostile to, it pulled away from. Some felt peace within it, others felt hatred. It all came down to Ruin's subtle touch and how much one responded to his promptings. So, Human has this conversation with Vin regarding... Previously, yes. Hatred. And, like, he mentions that the mists, they know the mists hate them too. I want to know if that was the case before they were under the control of Vin and Elend. Because I think he speaks hmm. for the entire Coloss, right? I think I think he makes mention that, like, he speaks in plurality, at least, as opposed to just him individually. So I wonder if that hatred is a result of them being linked to Vin and Elend, or if it was the case before, maybe a holdover from, like, being a creation of the Lord Ruler. Hmm. I don't know that I can answer that question. That's fine. Genuinely. That's just something I'm thinking um, about. But but in in the back of your head, I think I think you're on an interesting trail, which is what's the what's the delineation between the Lord Ruler's creational influence on on these creatures that he's made and Ruin's influence and Preservation's influence? Like what? Where does where's that line drawn between where these creatures are not coming from, but it, and not even supplied powered from, but like, what are they related to inside of the world? Who do they belong yeah. to? Yeah. Belong. That's a great way of putting it. Totally. Yeah. <clears throat> so speaking of creatures inside of the world, we are back with our favorite Chandra. I assume, I assume 10 soon your favorite Chandra. Do you have a better or option? Or better was. choice? Or Sewer was a piece of shit. Yeah, but <laughs> just kidding. He was, he was ours. He was fine. Okay. <laughs> for, no, 10 <laughs> for a chapter. <laughs> it's been 10 sooner die for like, at least a book now. Yeah. <laughs> you just didn't know. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> but we're, we're back with Tensoon in the Chandra. He's been locked in a cage, and bizarrely to him, they're trying really hard to prevent him from being able to run, despite his obvious honor inside of this, in, in which he, he doesn't want to run. He wants to prove his point more than anything else. What would you make of the, the read of this sort of very restrictive, jealous, not jealous, but like, I don't have the words it restrictive action yeah so i i completely get the prospect of wanting to hold your prisoner 
mm-hmm. and and keep them confined. But the fact that this specifically is so unprecedented, yeah, makes me really think that the firsts are gone, and that this is like the first real act of justice strictly by the seconds. They don't quite hmm. know how to like they're they're getting their footing, but like just are a little bit heavy handed in that respect. And just everything's everything's the second. That's what I'm getting from that. Just because it's different. It it's it's just a stark change from what's expected after this judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Tensoon is not expecting this reaction on any part. And the uh, fact that it's a month long wait, like mm-hmm. that was weird and different too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And it, it aligns, it aligns the timeline in an interesting way too, where we're like, we, we we're bouncing between perspectives and we know that he's going to be kind of trapped in here. And I think it's so what we get inside of this chapter is so important because it's the beginning of the collective community embarrassment and almost shame that he, he reaps from being mm-hmm. imprisoned in this sort of very disrobing dis it just boils down his character and it boils it boils him down as a as a person as a chondra into someone who can't be trusted at all right versus like previously they would trust and they would cage in other ways but this is dehumanizing yeah but dechondronizing how how does one that said yeah. What he did to deserve this is also technically unprecedented. So, True. Yes. Right. Like there's not a direct comparison. It's not unfounded. Yeah. Yeah. So just to it is kind dualistically of shoot, unfounded. shoot both of our conversations out like at the knees. Yeah. Right. But but there is the argument. There is an argument to be had. And I, I think that I agree with you on the side of is this the seconds taking control? What's what's the issue with the firsts? Like where Where's this lion lie between the two? So we haven't seen him. Right. We haven't heard yep. from him. We have mm-hmm. no actual proof that they are still alive. And we know mm-hmm. Chandra can imitate Chandra. Oh yeah. True. Interesting. Interesting. Who has I more get experience very big... in the first than the second? Mm, perhaps. I get very big. From the entire section of the Chandra, and we we aren't fully through this yet, but I get very big Dark Crystal vibes with the Skeksis, the big uh, raven people that are like full people. You know, the the Day 9 sound. Mm, okay. That movie. Do you not yep. know, do you genuinely not know what I'm talking about? Like, no, I, I thought you were talking about a book series. No, 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 no. Yeah, the, yeah the I movie, know what you're talking Henson about now. movie. Okay, yep. all right. Yep. Yeah. So the, I, I get very heavy, um, like, Skeksis community vibes and the way that they, like, all group in the round circle in the room and they've got the upper atrium and they've got people hiding in the background and, you know, kind of like an evil secret society <laughs> going on. <laughs> it, it feels, it, it, it evokes that vibe for me in these moments. And I think especially in the way that they're treating him as this fellow member that they've never treated anyone else before reminds me of the way that they treat outsiders and treat other people yeah yeah so we we get a little world building description of how con mistrates become chandra here as well and that's a really wonderful note to kind of go off on and, and talk about what you make of the uh sort of way that mistrates are nursed into being chandra it's through a blessing isn't it 
Or is that different? The transformation from Mistwraith to Chondra was a difficult one. Once given a blessing, the Mistwraiths would lose most of its instincts as it gained sentience and would have to relearn how to form muscles and bodies. It was a process that took many, many years. And then it kind of goes in Okay, from there. I was just curious. It's, it's a nice world-building element to like think about the way that yeah, you've these got, creatures like, are kind of nursed. Roaming bands of infants, essentially. <laughs> right. They're being led around. No, there's no parentage here. They're, they are like literally like roaming bands of infants. And I guess then, that's why we kind of get this situation with like, it's kind of the duty of one generation to raise another one. So the the sevenths, this rebellious group that we're going to deal with, were raised by the thirds. Mm-hmm. We're the only generation to be raised by the thirds. Which is, you know, look how they turned out. Right, right. <laughs> from in, from the perspective that, of like the first and seconds, like what the fuck? <laughs> right. Well, and, and the thirds themselves are, are very interesting because they are so different. Like we we technically have met two thirds, right? We've met Orsor, we met Tensoon. And so we, we have this kind of ideal, I, it's not idealized, but we have this version of them in our minds as we think about those two characters as, as Tensoon self-describes, like kind of strict conservatives in, in the way that they behave, but they're really like outrageous outliers, even from the the seconds. So mm-hmm. the sort of diaspora that has happened among the the, the various members of the Chandra species is is fascinating especially when you get to like milan and the groups that are rebelling in the way that they build their true bodies like that's where the story gets weird and interesting is in the way that everyone else has really changed and morphed themselves yeah speaking of milan at first early on like last section when we first interact with her i got this real like romantic vibe from her between the two of them and with that description of sort of the generations raising, it's very much, and just their interactions in this section, it very much feels father-daughter, right. which is an added sort of weird <laughs> interaction to put on top of everything and like juggle emotionally, you know? I don't know if I can I think it's more. A, <laughs> I think it's a really important thing to tackle, though. I, I agree it with is. you. I think that that's the intent here is to, is to make it, explicit as to what that was in the previous chapter and to like really define it. And that's to say that Milan Milan is really looking up to Tensoon here. And that's why she's pushing so hard for him to push against these, these boundaries because she, as the kid is like, well, come on dad. Like you can't just like bend over and die. Like you're not going to fucking do that. I know you, you raised me. And so there's this connotation that's, it's it's wonderful, it's saddening, but it's really important because I, I think the way that Mistrates become Chandra is unique almost entirely to almost any book I've read as far as a species breeds and raises its young. Like, this is such a unique way for a creature to come into the world and be raised. Fascinating. And at that, like, yes, we get that link to it now, but we right. don't have how Mistrates come about. True. Right. Like there we get the the adult in the like larval stage, but we don't have <laughs> the like egg. insemination to some degree. Yeah. Egg insemination. Right. I wasn't gonna go that well like deep about it. I was just gonna say egg. It's fine. I don't know. Yeah. 
But every time we get more information, I'm loving it. Yeah, I I really enjoy this this book series as as a like leverage point for a very big fantasy world. This has been made into a tabletop RPG, and I would adore doing a one shot within this world. I think it'd be a lot of fun. It would be. Let's do it. Did you have any other thoughts on Milan and the relationship and kind of the conversation that happens between the two of them? Anything else that kind of tickled at you? Um, not specifically that we have. It's a short chapter. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a couple of pages. Yeah. Nothing crazy. I, I do. I really enjoyed this week's reading and I tried to like highlight that in the way that I talked about on the top where it's very it is sad. It is lore driven, but not in a in a bad or overhanded way, which I feel like is a lot of what we get here. So mm-hmm. I think this is a great example of like striking the right emotional balance where it's like we realize that the sevenths are ra- were raised by the thirds and that there is this generational gap between Chandra as they grow up. And it's a fascinating thing to like pass on in a weird way inside of this community. So right. we end every week, of course, with a logbook. So our final logbook here, it should be no surprise that Elland became such a powerful allomancer. It is a well-documented fact, though that the documentation wasn't available to most, that allomancers were much stronger during the early days of the final empire. In those days, an allomancer didn't need Duralman to take control of a chondra or coloss. A simple push or pull on the emotions would was enough. In fact, this ability was one of the main reasons that the Chandra devised their contracts with humans, or at the time, for at the time, not only Mistborn, but soothers and rioters could take control of them at the merest of whims. Okay, so it makes the argument that Elend has become a Mistborn of old, effectively, right? And that's why he's... So much more powerful. But that's how Vin was described, too. But in the moment in which she was described like that, she was burning Duralamin. So that's the thing. Okay, like She was using true. that as a cheat. However, she is described that way by Sazed in the first book. Right, yes. Also, note here, an Alamancer didn't need Duralamin. Right. Not a Mistborn didn't need Duralamin. Right. It's specific. Yeah. Doesn't. Does that mean like other Alamancers can use Duralamin? No, I think it's the opposite suggestion, which is to say that rioters and soothers can you could like old rioters right. and soothers could get them under the control on their own. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What I, I think so. what I think this points to, if we think about it, if we think about the the power of the older generation is that it leads to the dilution of power over time, which means that people have been getting weaker since the beginning versus like Ellen does this like strong point for Mistborn being that he's kind of a new starting point to some degree. An iron gold, if you will. Sure. Yes. <laughs> Modern iron gold. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's kind of what he's pulling at. You know, it's kind of yeah this idea that over time, the dilution of blood and everything else has reduced the power. Whereas um, this is, was imbued external of yeah. blood. So, okay. So, hypothetically, Elend and Vin have children, both being misborn at this point. Are their children guaranteed to be misborn? 
That's a great question that I don't know if there's a firm answer to in terms of genealogy. Okay. Think think about Elland and his brothers and the many, many offshoots from his dad. I'm sure that he tried and experimented with people that he knew were Alamancers. I'm sure. I'm not saying Alamancer. I'm saying Mistborn. Straight up Mistborn. I don't I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it's a guarantee. But it's a good question. One we would need, we need our pundit squares. Yeah, we do. We do. One would as well. How for the thing about Punnett squares, how does internal ingestion of of a trait affect a Punnett square? If I eat a thing that makes me a thing, how does that change my chromosomes? Nugget <laughs> or, square. And or my ability. Yeah. If I eat a nuggy. If it's I eat a nugget a, square now. If I eat an elementic nuggy, how does that change my <laughs> effects here cool all right did you have any other thoughts on on this log book i think it's a it's a fun one that kind of delineates a lot of things no i i expressed what i wanted to all right all right cool so with that we move into pj's predictions i want to i want to start off here by like reading through a couple so we were talking about this all the way back in the well of ascension you i i asked all this death and destruction caused by the mist that leaves us with a question We've been pondering for a bit, but we haven't really put anything on. Do you have any suspicions of what's going on with the mist? Why does some live and why does some die? You said, I have absolutely no idea. Being inside seems to actually help. And they run out of food and starve to death. The problem is, is that this prediction wasn't wrong. Because <laughs> being inside at this point, we know does help it does protect against the mist the the boundaries of of places and houses helps to a certain extent and they do run out of food and starve to death however that's not the only thing that's wrong so i think this Mm -hmm. is a put that's it's a fucking vague answer i'm drinking for all right fair fair point like i don't know how you let me get away with that being an answer you know, sometimes I just had to instead of this book because I couldn't ask you to get more specific because you'd be like, oh, it's yeah. more specific. OK, like I need to get. Are you thinking that I'm on it or am I off it? Like that's part of the problem with some of these. OK, cool. That's it. That was the only one. Okay. That's the one that I drank in the middle of the episode because I definitely asked that question at some point. I'm convinced. So just that one. Very exciting. Very fun time. With that, we close out the episode. Because again, we aren't quite doing questions of the week or next week's questions yet. Because we've got, we're kind of on a condensed schedule as we had for Hero of Ages. So with that, next week we are going to be tackling chapters 21 through 29. Again, 21 through 29. This is, I think, the longest reading of this book. I, I think it's the longest section. Yeah, 77 pages in the paperback. Yeah, it's not, it's not crazy. We might have one that's 78, including like a weird chapter page, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it should be cool. okay. Right, should be should be great. Very excited for uh, for what's to come. Yes. Yeah. For sure. All right. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you as ever to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep our shows going. You can check out the links like all of our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, social media accounts all in one very convenient location. That said, we do want to make mention of the new social media accounts that we made mention of at the top of the show. One, Atomic Pylon Media is going to be your home for all information about all the shows that are on our network. That can be found on Twitter and Instagram and shortly Facebook. 
uh, of which you'll be able to kind of access if, you, if you're wanting to follow the larger spectrum of things that we produce and create. Of course, we'll be pro- cross-promoting those. So if you follow us on one, you'll probably see other things. Beyond that, we have our new show, Catacomb Party, The Tales of Kana launching. And it's important that you follow Catacomb Party on Instagram. I think I'm going to make the Twitter account this week for them as or for us as well. So look mm-hmm. out for that. Definitely follow the links like PJ had mentioned within the show notes, including the link to the brand new show that came out yesterday. Yeah, so I'm excited for people to hear it. Really, really it's our am. third show, third show publicly released. And it's definitely the most work that we put into a show by far. So we hope everyone appreciates it. Again, for those of you who don't know, Tales of Kana Catacomb Party is a live play D&D show that is then subsequently edited down, including sound effects and other things like that. But it is a improv style D&D campaign show, a la Critical Role and Dimension 20. Yeah. Beyond that, if you want to find just us on social media, we'll be talking about all these other things because we can't help ourselves. You can find us words whiskey pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit, and words and whiskey show at gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. And you can find our t shirts on T Public if you search words and whiskey or Atomic Pylon Media. Either way, you'd follow all of the links in our description. Beyond that, make sure you give all the fall the shows a follow and any podcast you like, five star review on Apple, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Thank you, everybody, for all of your support. It really does mean the world to us. We will see you next week. You rock.